Welcome to the FPC Thomasville podcast. We believe human life has a designer, so learning to live by design will help you thrive within all your spheres of influence. Today, you will hear a message from Dr. Rob Weingartner as part of our World Mission Conference 2020. Well, what a joy it is to be back in Thomasville. And I have to observe, I don't think I've ever been introduced before with a quotation from Mae West. <laughs> Thank you, Tim. I, I needed a Bible, and so I took a Bible from the independent Bible class. And, um, you know, I was reminded of how jarring and how disorienting God's Word can be at times, because I opened the text, and it's upside down. <laughs> And I wondered if that was an intentional move by the independent Bible class, <laughs> or if you got a discount from the publisher and said people will get used to it. It's actually the Southern Hemisphere edition. Yeah. <laughs> you have to read it in Australia. Australia. Well, I, um, I've been off the road for a while because of uh, Parkinson's disease which is beginning to take a toll, and I'm dealing with the effects of that. Um, and I've been back out for a couple Sundays, and it's awfully good to be back. And back in Thomasville, where there are so many friends, and uh, always such a loving reception, and such attentive hearts to discern what your place in the world is, what your place in God's mission is. Some of you know Vic Pence. Uh, Vic um, is a friend of mine, friend of many of yours probably. For a long time, he was the pastor of Peachtree Church in Atlanta. And Vic grew up in a Christian home. When he was about eight years old, he heard the, the pastor talking about taking the gospel to all the world, about sharing Jesus with, with all peoples. And, um, you know, Vic was pretty serious about the Lord, even as a child. And so he got, um, he got blue crayons, or not blue crayons, blue chalk, and he wrote a gospel message on every one of his neighbor's driveways <laughs> in big blue letters which was an embarrassment enough for his parents, who insisted that he wipe the drive, clean the driveways off. The text that he chose probably might have been a little bit, well, what do you think? The wages of sin is death. <laughs> well, Vic, Vic still has a heart for evangelism and for, for God's word and for sharing and bearing witness to the good news. I want to read two texts from this Bible that turns our lives upside down. The first is from Mark chapter 2. It's Jesus' call to the disciples, and it's a familiar text. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And the ESV has a footnote that said, this means men and women. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he came to saw and saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed Jesus. And from the book of Acts, from Acts chapter 1, again, listen to the word of God. So 
So when they had come together, this is after Easter and as Jesus is preparing to ascend into heaven. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Calvin said there are more mistakes in that question than there are words. <laughs> Jesus said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for our word, for your word. And uh, thank you that uh, you've poured out your spirit upon us, that we might discern what you would say to us tonight. Open our hearts to hear your word and prepare them to obey. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to tell you a story about a friend of mine. His name is Roy Soto. And Roy was a pastor's kid. He grew up in a Pentecostal church. Um, and um, his dad was very strict, very harsh, very hard. And when Roy got into college, he decided he would leave the church, and he left his father for all practical purposes and began a business career. He worked, I think, with Pepsi or Coca-Cola, whoever has the uh, Costa Rica franchise. But then something happened in Roy's life, and he began feeling a tug, a tug back to the church, tug back to the Lord. So he went to the seminary in Costa Rica, and uh, he studied and he decided that he wanted, he was called to begin a new church, to found a church, not like his father's congregation, but something different. He and his wife and another couple just prayed that God would show them where they needed to go, and they discerned that God was calling them to a little village about an hour above the capital city in the mountains, up near a volcano a village called Frahenas, and they decided that that's where they would go. And so they went. They found a place to live, and then Roy went to the town council one day, and he said, we're here uh, to help. We're here to serve the village. We're here to uh, make a difference for the Lord. Um, how can we help you? How can we serve you? This was not a village where Protestants were very welcome, and the response from one of the town council, one of the town fathers was, all you would be good to do is to pick up our garbage. And so for a year, Roy and the other three picked up the garbage. They're still picking up the garbage, by the way. And then after a year, Roy went back and he said, how else might we serve? How else might we serve? Roy um, found all kinds of ways to serve they noticed that uh, the people were standing in the rain waiting for the buses that carried them down to their jobs or up the mountain to work at the park. People would often be standing in the rain just soaked to the skin. And so they built bus stops for people to stand under and be sheltered from the rain and the inclement weather. They, they saw one time that um, there were youth that were just getting into trouble and they created a, a youth soccer program and they created a, a program that provided fellowship and food to seniors serving their community, serving their neighbors. And then the, the Catholic Church one day was having a funeral, and on these narrow streets, a man was hit and killed at, while he was coming to the funeral. And so Roy and his congregation built a parking lot for the Catholic Church. 
It's interesting, the Catholic priest said, um, he says now that uh, I really don't want you to become a Protestant, but if you do, you have to join Roy's church. (laughs) Roy's church understands that the church does not exist for its own sake and that there are times we need to change how we are behaving in order for people to believe the good news that we're preaching, that we're speaking, that we're sharing with them. What were Jesus' first words to the disciples along the shore of Galilee? We just heard them. Follow me, and I will make you fish for people, for men and women. What were Jesus' last words? We just heard them from Acts 1. Before the ascension, Jesus says, You shall be my witnesses in in Jerusalem and all Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. See, Jesus has this in his mind, in his life, in his purpose, in his will, this inescapable connection between discipleship and mission, between following him and serving others by sharing the good news of the gospel. We're blessed, as it says in Genesis 12, in God's call to Abram, we're blessed in order to be a blessing. And the church is blessed in order to be a blessing. You know, there are times, as uh, Tim mentioned in talking about institutions and about mission, when the institutions have, have, have indeed lost their way and um, become protective of the gospel, uh, preventing people from coming to Christ, erecting barriers that keep people from him. The, the great Catholic missionary movements, the Protestant missionary societies, um, the Reformation in a sense, the... Um, creation of evangelical groups in the um, early 1900s, the student volunteer movement, uh, the creation of Young Life and Campus Crusade and other evangelical groups were all responses to the church getting bogged down by the institution and losing sight of its mission. But it's not only institutions and churches that can do that. We can do that in our own lives. We can imagine that, that it's about us that it's about us. And we end up with a kind of half-salvation. By that, I don't mean that our salvation isn't assured as promised in the gospel. But we are enjoying the benefits of the gospel without living into the responsibility. We're, We're enjoying the comfort of the gospel without the opportunity to participate in God's mission. You know, it's... um. There's a a great vision in John's revelation in the seventh chapter, beginning with verse 9, where he describes how people of every nation and tribe and tongue and language are gathered around the throne and around the Lamb. It really is the the visible uh, completion of the promise that was made to Abraham, that that in him all the peoples of the earth would be blessed. And between that promise and between the fulfillment in Revelation, we live. We live and move and have our being. And we are invited to give our lives, to yield our lives to Jesus Christ and to enjoy the benefits of the gospel, the joy and hope and peace and assurance and freedom that come with living in Christ. But if we stop there, if we forget that there's a responsibility, that there's a mission, that there's a response that's invited of us, we do end up with a a truncated experience of what it means to live in Christ because we are not created for the sake of ourselves. As congregations, we don't exist 
for the sake of ourselves. We exist for the sake of others. And that's what I see so often as I, as I travel around and, and um, meet the global church. They understand that the fishing is still taking place. And um, the fishing is still taking place. And um, they've ex- they experienced in many places the reality of Pentecost, the pouring out of the Spirit upon the believers. That first Pentecost and each of our Pentecosts is our salvation is sealed with the gift of the Holy Spirit. It was interesting to me to see uh, as we worshipped, there were some, um, it reminded me of the diversity of those who will gather around the throne because there were some who, who worshipped like this and some who worshipped like this, some who worshipped like this, some who worshipped like this. I don't, I don't know what those are grades of, or, but uh, some, some people worship like this. And uh, we'll all be there around the throne and around the Lamb. Jesus said his final words, you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus makes this inextricable connection between mission and discipleship. I want to share with you a little bit of what we're learning from the global church and how they embody this living out the gospel uh, for other's sake that I described. This is um, the church in Aleppo, Syria, after the rockets hit. And um, this is the church in Syria, in Aleppo, after the bombs went off, piles of rubble. The congregation moved to a new location in West Aleppo, which is a safer area. They built a church building. Before the building was completed, they found that there was water, there was good water on the site of kind of an artesian well that supplied water. And so they began very quickly to allow their neighbors, primarily their Muslim neighbors, to come and have this water as a gift. They heard that there were um, people living in warehouses on the east side of Aleppo where it was still violent and still um, controlled by uh, competing forces. And they decided that they would send people, they would send people out with food to care for these folks at the risk of their own lives. And they um, now are opening a clinic across the street from their new church, which will care for people, again, caring primarily for people who, who aren't Muslims, who are Muslims, rather. When, uh, when we were there in February, this is Ibrahim Nasir, the pastor in the middle, and two of his elders. We were walking around the grounds of the rubble of the destroyed church, and he found this fragment of marble that had been in, carved with the words in Arabic, um, thou anointest my head, and then on the bottom line, forever. It was a section of Psalm 23 that was a part of the wall of the church in the sanctuary that had been broken and destroyed by the bombs. And I, and I think, you know, what would it be like for someone who has literally walked through the valley of the shadow of death to see a reminder like that, a reminder of their brokenness, but a reminder of God's promise that stands in the face of all. Ibrahim and his wife Tammy could have left Syria at any time. They could have gone away. They had the means, the resources, the connections. But he chose to stay. And he chose to stay because he was committed to preserving a witness to the gospel in Syria, a witness to the gospel, because he knows the church doesn't exist for the sake of itself, for its own comfort and pleasure and convenience. 
It exists to make real in others' lives the goodness and grace of God as revealed in Jesus Christ. I, I love this picture. We've been thinking about China a lot with the uh, coronavirus, and I love the woman on the right, just the joy that fills her face. This is a Weifang, a village in Shandong province, and these women are, uh, you wouldn't guess it, but they're teachers and workers who, who are preparing men and women for ministry at a Bible school level. And they were so excited that we came to see what they were doing. And we were excited to see what they were doing. Uh, did you know that in China, Christians are, have a reputation for being good witnesses in court? Because they're known to tell the truth. They're known to tell the truth. This is a, another church. Um, it's the, good, the Golden Lampstand Church in uh, Shangji. In June of last year, this is what happened to this church. It was destroyed by the government. And um, whatever you've heard about the, the church in China is true somewhere. Because in the different provinces, the government laws are imp imposed in different ways. And in, the, there was a, in Shangxi, there was a particularly rigorous response against the church. Uh, children are prevented from going to Sunday school. Churches are prevented to, to gather. In light of the current epidemic, no, no churches are gathering. And we've had appeals from friends in China to pray for the church, that it would be faithful in this time of need. This tells a little bit of what's going on. China tells Christians to replace images of Jesus with communist president. President Xi is consolidating his control on every sector and dimension of Chinese society, including the church. And so the church is coming under some new persecution, new pressure that it hasn't known for some time, both the registered churches and the unregistered churches. And yet China is the place where the fat church is still growing by leaps and bounds, by as many as a thousand new converts a day. And it's just breathtaking to see what God is doing. What brings people to faith in China? Sasan talked about freedom and how important freedom is in Iran to people who are hungry for the gospel. In China, I think a part of what people are longing for is, in, is integrity, a sense that all of the pieces fit together and that their lives are meaningful. And what happens so often in China is that someone observes the life of another. And as it says in 1 Peter 3, they're prepared to give an accounting for the hope that is within them. And the church grows. It grows by leaps and bounds. This is a congregation in um, Ethiopia. It's a bench congregation. That's their tribe. And it's a church that we helped to put on a roof, a roof on their church building. And they greeted to gather. They gathered to greet us and, and thank us. But um, the story of the growth of the church in Ethiopia also begins with persecution. You know, during the communist revolution in China, people feared that the growth, that the church and the work of the missionaries would turn out to be for naught. But what they found after the cultural revolution, when the society opened up, was that the church had actually grown during that time of, of persecution. And that's part of the story of the Ethiopian church. During the DERG, the communist regime, when pastors were imprisoned, I know pastors who were in prison 16 times, 18 times, during the nine years of the communist rule. During the time of the DERG, the pressure and persecution, the church 
grew. You know, it, it, um, I don't want to go from meddling, from preaching to meddling, but I, but I would observe that it's when the church is comfortable that it tends to get in trouble. And it's when the church is being forced to be dependent upon God that it grows in amazing ways. And I, I think it goes back to, well, you'll remember the warnings that came through Moses to the Israelites. Take heed lest you forget the Lord your God. And when you go in and you enjoy these vineyards that you didn't plant and these uh, cisterns that you didn't hew, take heed lest you forget the Lord your God. The, the church in Ethiopia in the last 60 years has grown from 50, this is one denomination, has grown from 50,000 believers to six, excuse me, to nine million believers. From 60, from 50,000 to 9 million in 60 years. It's um, sort of like you said about uh, Jesus in the Middle East, Hassan. Yeah. Harold Kurtz used to say, the gospel is out of control, <laughs> which even makes these Presbyterians a little nervous because we like to pretend that we're under, in control. Uh, in... Um, in Kirkuk, Iraq, which is the location of three of the pres three one of three Presbyterian churches, there's a group of women who have a women's ministry. They go into the prison. Most of the prisoners in this women's prison are in, pre in jail for theft or for prostitution. And most of their families are, are so shamed by what they've done that their families just write them off. No one helps them. But the Presbyterian women go into the prison every week and take uh, personal items that the women need. Uh, they'll take uh, uh, gifts, that, uh, simple gifts. Um, they, take, um, they give a cloth. You can, well, you can't see it here. But they give a cloth that said, God loves you. They, they sew it and embroider it in Arabic on a, on a kind of doily cloth. Those are words that they will never hear in the mosque. Those are words that they'll never read in the Quran. God loves you. One, one day, the um, pastor's wife uh, went in, and, and she saw this cross made out of cigarette boxes. That's what it, what it is. It's cigarette uh, cases. Uh, and she said, well, she asked the, the woman who had made that, T tell me about that. What is that? And she said... You've told us that, that Jesus is the one who gives hope. That in his death and his resurrection, we find hope and new life. And I need that hope. I need that life. And so she made a cross out of cigarette, cigarette uh, cartons on her, on her wall. It's an amazing thing how God is at work. God is at work through Pazzini, who's uh, a missionary that you're supporting in Brazil. Um, Bazzini has a unique ministry. He was, he was in the United States and working to help plant Brazilian Portuguese-speaking churches here in the U.S. And then the church there, there said, Bazzini, come back. We need you. And he wasn't sure what they needed him for, frankly. But when he got back and prayed and discerned about this and talked to people, what he realized was that the pastors were disillusioned and worn out. There's a high incidence of clergy suicide, that the churches were 
institutions that were bereft of and devoid of mission. And so he began a ministry of revitalizing congregations, creating programs at seminaries and through the churches that help congregations to be revitalized in their mission, and also a mentoring program where he's counseling pastors. And um, the pastors will say to Pazzini, you not only have saved my ministry, you've saved my life. And again, that's something that you're doing, and that's work that you're making possible as Pazzini reaches out to serve in Jesus' name. Got to get high enough. And I hope you know that you're involved in Cuba with a beautiful church called Guanabacoa. It's not far outside of Havana. You, you developed with the elders and leaders of that church a vision. It began as, I think, a seed in Yolkis, Pastor Yolkis' heart. You helped to water that seed and grow that vision. And now together, you're doing something that neither of you could do on your own. This will be a school for children. And more than anything else, it will be a school where children are introduced to the love of Jesus Christ. In a communist country, you're involved there in blessing children in Jesus' name. Um, they don't have a lot. They're scrounging up things that they need. Uh, here, uh, Yelkos was really excited that he found two whiteboards. Let's see. Oops. There. He found two whiteboards for the classrooms, which is exciting for him. Um, I'm so grateful for your involvement with Stu Ross and the difference that you're making in Kenya. Uh, I hope you were paying attention to what, uh, what the narration said about children, and particularly girls, who are being rescued. Um, particularly among the Maasai, girls are given in early marriage. They suffer uh, uh, female genital mutilation as a regular part of the culture there in the Maasai culture. And, um, and children, girls especially, who escape to the rescue centers that you've helped to build are able then to be reconciled with their families through the intercession of the church and the chief and the district commissioner working together, the politicians and the, political the, the elected political leaders and, uh, and the chief and the church will work together to restore these children to their families and um, to a better future as they finish school. It's an amazing thing to see the girl's life transformed by education, and you're making that happen in Kenya every day. I, ch I checked with the, the youth table, if this was really a picture of youth at, for, at uh, First Presbyterian Church. <laughs> And they said, yes, it is. Uh, this was the progressive dinner, I guess. Um, you know, as, as we visited the last few days, um, several of you have talked about your concern for the next generation or the, your grandchildren's generation and uh, what kind of legacy are you leaving them and how will the church reach them and how will the church serve them in ways that help them to discover that they're created in God's image and that they're loved uniquely by their Heavenly Father. And we know that through the gift of Jesus Christ, his son. I want to conclude with a word about that, about how you disciple your children and youth and help them understand that they are a part of God's mission. And it, it comes down very simply to this. Show them. Show them. 
and talk to them. Talk to them about the decisions that you'll make this weekend about how much you're going to give in support of the mission offering. Talk about why it's important to you. Let them see you going out into the community and serving others in ways that change lives to the glory of God. And Jesus said, let your works, let your good works shine before men that they might see them and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. It's a good word for parents. Let your works be seen by your children that they may give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Show them and tell them. I, uh, I'm excited as I've met youth here at First Presbyterian Church. I think I, I, I sent a maturity and a, and a wisdom that uh, is beyond uh, a typical youth group of youth. And I think that is because of who their parents and their grandparents are. But, you know, we're in a culture that is so pervasive and so thick and so hard to move through, uh, to stand against. Um, we have, for the first time, a generation of young people, the majority of whom are being raised outside of any religious participation or community whatsoever. And so unlike the baby boomers who, so many of them, returned to church when they started having their own children, the majority of children today don't know where to go. They don't know, they don't have anything to go back to. And uh, so it is so important, I think, for this group that you show them and that you tell them that mission is an essential part of what it means to be a follower of Christ. That if you follow Jesus, he will lead you into the world and he will use you to bless others in his name. That the church exists not for the sake of itself, but for the sake of God's glory and God's mission. And that at our best, we remember that the church baptizes us into a mission society that exists again for the sake of others who do not know the Lord. I'm, I'm so excited about the things that you're doing. And, I, and I'm so excited to hear Ben talk about stretching your vision and extending your reach and uh, digging deeper. He, he speaks so plainly, so bluntly <laughs> about, um, about the reason why we have more than we need, so many of us, and that is so we can be a blessing to others. Bless you as you follow Jesus into the world, around the corner and around the world, and know that I give thanks to God upon every remembrance of First Presbyterian Church, Thomasville. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for this group of men and women and young people who would lean into your calling upon their lives. We know, Lord, that uh, we are all called to bear witness to the good news of Jesus Christ, that it's not something that is the responsibility of pastors or the mission committee or evangelists, as important as those roles are, but that each one of us is invited to live into the joyful privilege of sharing the good news of your grace with others, sharing the good news of the gospel with others. Help us be faithful in that work. Lord, even this week, show us how we can reach out to someone else to show the world that we don't exist for the sake of ourselves, that we exist for the sake of God's glory and God's mission in the world. You've blessed us. We bless you. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>